0: We are in a revolution, but it is a revolution in which the side that fires the first
1: shot loses. We will not fire any shots because
2: our weapon is uncommon good sense.
1: Hello and welcome to Tractor Time. Tractor Time is brought to you by Barn in Door and Acres USA, the voice of eco agriculture. I'm your host, Ben Trollinger, editor of Acres USA magazine. On this, our 51st episode, we welcome investigative journalist Tom Philpot. Philpot is the food and ag correspondent for Mother Jones. Before that, he covered the food system for Grist. His reporting has appeared in the New York Times, Newsweek, and The Guardian. He's worked as a bona fide farmer and now splits his time between Austin, Texas, and North Carolina. He has a new book out from Bloomsbury Publishing. It's called Perilous Bounty, The Looming Collapse of American Farming and How He Can Prevent It. I'm thrilled to be able to share this conversation with you today, but before we get to that, let's check in with the fine folks at Rodale Institute. Welcome to a monthly segment we're calling Transition Land. It's a collaboration with Rodale Institute, and we're focused on helping conventional farmers transition to regenerative organic practices. On this episode, Christy Windelberger joins us to talk about the regenerative organic certification standards Rodale helped develop. Christy, thanks for joining us.
2: Hi, Ben. Thank you.
1: Could you tell us a little bit about your role at Rodale Institute?
2: Yeah, I am the Director of Research at the Southeast Organic Center. We opened up in February of last year, so we're just making our first year anniversary right now. And I started working at Rodale in March of last year. Uh, My background is in plant ecology, so I am um, naturally, I'm trained as a plant ecologist and that means I've done a lot of work uh, studying, well in this particular case, did a lot of work studying rare species and regeneration niches of rare species and a lot of my time and research has been spent in the Everglades working there. And so sometimes people ask, "Why? how did you get to Rodale doing agricultural research if you're coming from the Everglades? And the reason is because at heart, I'm a conservation biologist and I really want to conserve the land. I've worked on single species introductions and I've worked my way up through my career in terms of scale. And my previous job, I was doing advocacy work for Everglades restoration. And during that, I realized that most of the problems that are happening in the Everglades, aside from canals, the other half of the issue is farming practices. And it's the way we're farming and putting nutrients into the watershed, which is causing a lot of the problems that are happening in South Florida and and around the world today. And so when this opportunity came up to work at Rodale and try to work on figuring out ways to get people to farm better, I saw that as a way to continue my, my career journey of scaling up in how I'm going to work to protect, pre- protect the environment and protect the earth for everyone.
1: So this is really about educating farmers on how to change their practices, particularly reducing use of pesticides, herbicides, synthetic fertilizers, things like that.
2: Exactly. And to get the, the all of that, to get the chemical use down, um, because a lot of the issues when you look at the Gulf of Mexico and the dead zones in the Gulf of Mexico, that's caused from nutrient runoff going down through the Mississippi watershed and out into the Gulf. Uh, the same thing when you hear about algae blooms in South Florida, when uh, and and Lake Okeechobee and all the algae blooms happening there, that's because of nutrient runoff from farming mainly. That's coming out into Lake Okeechobee and then going off out into the coastal areas and causing these unnatural blooms of algae. And so we can help that by fixing our farm practices and and, um, working more sustainably and doing more organic and regenerative agriculture.
1: What are the first steps that you usually prescribe to farmers who are looking at changing their practices to be more organic or regenerative?
2: Well, I mean, I guess it depends on where they're at. In order to move forward with any kind of change, you have to start with just where you are. And so some farmers are already doing things like cover cropping. Cover cropping is really important. You don't want to leave the soil bare for large periods of time. That causes... All sorts of things to happen. It can cause runoff if there's a big rain. It can there can be erosion if it allows for off gassing of of carbon dioxide and, ch- and nitrogen and changes in the in the microbial community in the soil that really can help. If there's cover crops, it can really help the soil perform better for your crop in the future and and provide more yield for your crop in the future.
1: So keeping roots in the soil.
2: Roots in the soil. That's really important. Yes, absolutely.
1: Well, so talk a little bit about definitions. So people have an idea of what organic is. It's what you don't use. You don't use pesticides. You don't use herbicides. And then the latest term is regenerative. Um, A lot of our listeners may know what that is think that they do. How do you define it when you're talking to conventional farmers, let's say? How do you explain the concept of regenerative organic agriculture?
2: Well, regenerative agriculture, a lot of conventional farmers are using regenerative agriculture. Uh, regenerative means no-till means cover cropping. A lot of people are already doing that. It's a way to, like I said, a way to protect your soil microbial level, a way to protect uh, your soil during re- major rain events when you don't have a crop on the land. Um, the difference is that when you are regenerative organic, then you are not, you are taking it another step farther. You're not just, you're not just cover cropping, you're not just no till, you also instead of cover cropping and then killing your cover crop with an herbicide you cover crop and then you roll your cover crop down with a roller crimper for example or you flail mow it and you leave it down as a compost layer regenerative organic farmers are not using chemicals they're not using the pesticides the herbicides it's It's going back to that story of the Everglades. It's the way to keep the, the nutrient levels stable in the soil and really have healthy soil that then can lead to healthier plants and then healthier people that are eating that food.
1: So Rodale has a regenerative organic certification process. Talk a little bit about that. What does it take? What are the, what are sort of the the benchmarks? What are the boxes that you have to check in order to get that certification? I think that might be kind of interesting for farmers who are looking to get into something like that in terms of their practices to know what that list of things might be.
2: So, regenerative organic certification is overseen by the Regenerative Organic Alliance. Rodale is a part of that. There's lots of organizations that are a part of it. Dr. Bronner's Patagonia, Compassion and World Farming, there's there's several other other organizations that are involved. And the idea to regenerative organic certification is to use the USDA sort of certification process as a baseline. That's great, right? USDA is there, USDA certification is there and it's awesome that it exists. And we know that when you eat your foods from there, they're going to be pesticide-free and herbicide-free. But what regenerative organic does is take it another step further. So it really shows that the farmer is doing regenerative practices. You can be organic and not do regenerative practices. Um, And so part of the, the process is to spend the first two to three years, one to three years, improving your soils in the way that you do during the organic certification, getting them up to that Level so that you're really maintaining the soils. There's three three pillars in regenerative organic uh, certification. There's soil health, animal welfare, and social fairness. So the next step after you've got your soils going and things are and and you're doing practices in a regenerative way, then it's animal welfare. If you have animals on your property, how are you how are you keeping them? Are they Are they free from, free from harm, free from disease? Are they on pasture? Are they, are they in a really cramped environment where they're uncomfortable or do you have them free where they can actually behave the way animals, there that species would behave in the wild, right? Can they roam? Do they have some space? And then there's also the social fairness aspect. You know, farming is not, you know, it's hard to get the money that you put into your farm back in from your produce. And so it's understandable when, Farmers are trying to find ways to save money. But if you're, you know, the whole point to regenerative organic certification is you're paying your workers fairly. Um, There's transparency in the process of, in the employment process. There's no forced labor, that it's just a healthy, safe work environment. And the idea is that when you get this label and you get this regenerative organic certification, then It will help you be able to increase the value of your product so that you get your money back for these extra efforts and you get recognized as doing these extra efforts. And then the consumer, when they're buying the food, can say, you know, can know within themselves that that their food is coming from a place that's treating the land well, that's restoring their soils that's treating the animals on their property well, and that's treating their employees well as well. So, you know, it's coming from a holistically healthy environment.
1: Well, thanks so much for joining us, Christy. I really appreciate your time. Thank you. Christy Wendelberger is the research director for the Rodale Institute Southwest Organic Center in Chattahoochee Hills, Georgia. She's responsible for expanding organic farming practices throughout the Southeast through research, outreach, and education. Learn more about her work in Georgia at rodaleinstitute.org forward Southeast Organic Center. I want to take this moment to introduce our new sponsor, Barn to Door. They're doing a new segment aimed at helping farmers, and you'll hear that later in this episode. But who are they? Barnador powers farmers who sell direct, helping them increase sales, access customers, and save time. They help farmers meet buyers' expectations through easy ordering and an accessible brand across all online channels. Farmers use software, services, and resources from Barnador to manage and promote their business. The bottom line is this. Farmers that provide convenient buying and delivery options reach more buyers. Data shows farmers can double revenue when they offer online subscriptions and direct delivery. Promote your brand, manage your orders, and keep your profits with Barn to Door, providing the capabilities and support you need to build a thriving farm direct business. Learn more at door.com forward slash tractor time. Okay, Tom Philpott. There's so many books now on the shelf that indict our broken food system, but Philpot's new book is the culmination of an impressive career spent holding industry and government accountable. Perilous Journey tells the story of two U.S. farming powerhouses, California's Central Valley and the Corn Belt of the Midwest. Through this lens, Philpott makes the case that current agricultural practices and policies are leading us down the road to environmental ruin, and yet there's still hope on the horizon. I hope you find this conversation as insightful as I did. Tom, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. There are countless books written on our dysfunctional food system, but your book takes an interesting angle on this subject. You focus in on two major agricultural regions, the Central Valley in California and the Corn Belt in the Midwest. Can you explain why you chose those two areas and what they tell us about modern industrial agriculture?
0: Yeah, so I chose, um, you know, I started writing about this topic around 2005. Uh, I was working on a small farm in the mountains of North Carolina. Actually, an acres reader from that time I found it in a health food store in Asheville. I was a couple of hours away from Asheville, but we would go there every once in a while. And um, when you start writing about the U.S. food system as a whole, you tend to gravitate toward these two areas Because, you know, basically most of the fruits and vegetables that Americans find in the supermarket or get at fast food establishments or even just, you know, regular independent restaurants come from California. If they're not imported, Uh, if they're domestically grown, the majority of them come from California. You know, in the winter, tomatoes come from Florida and there are other definitely other places that have important roles in the food system, but California is a dominant supplier of fruits and vegetables in the United States. And, you know, also obviously nuts like pistachios and almonds that we're getting more and more used to having on a regular basis, all of that comes from California. And then um, with the Midwest, you know, obviously the corn and soybeans, that, that production of those commodities is centered in the Midwest. And those are, the main building blocks of the, of the meat that we all consume when we go to the grocery store, look at this, you know, supermarket case, the, the meat section is dominated by meat that was raised on corn and soybeans uh, from the Midwest. And so, uh, I'm, you know, over the years writing a lot about these two areas and um, long about 2013, in the middle of the California drought, I start to dive deep into the water politics and ecology of California and I see that it's there are some real major long-term problems of you know essentially agriculture had gotten so big there that it was overstripping California's water resources and right when I was coming to that realization there were these big storms in the Midwest and um I happened to be doing a story there at the time and I realized that these big sp- spring storms that are related, related to climate change that are ever increasing in the Midwest are really doing a number on that region's soil. Mm-hmm. And so I'm thinking, well, um, and then, you know, I, I dig into it and I find, um, pretty quickly evidence of, uh, erosion happening in the Midwest way greater than what the USDA is counting. And so I'm thinking to myself, You know, these are the two crucial nodes of our food system, and both of them are in a state of ecological decline that is accelerating, and it seemed to me a pretty important thing to put together and and discuss.
1: Well, describe these two places as ecosystems, particularly before colonial expansion.
0: Yeah so both of them are really unique ecosystems on the planet or nearly unique they're very rare ecosystems on the planet i should say um so california has got this you know it's probably the biggest mediterranean style climate in the world and that that's actually a technical term that um that means on the edge of a continent in a place that um, you know, on the, you know, the, uh, the sunny side, so it could be in the Southern Hemisphere or the Northern Hemisphere, but the sunnier toward the equator side that gets a lot of, uh, of weather from deep into the ocean um, hitting up against it as a, as the edge of a big landmass. Um, and Mediterranean climates are, are, tend to be, you know, characterized by, you know, very, very long and warm summers and pretty mild winters. And, California's got this other thing about it is it's, it's got this mountain range called the Sierra Nevadas that actually capture this weather, which originates in the South Pacific. Um, in the right months, it um, essentially serves as sort of a, a dead end for the weather. So it, you know, these storms hit up against the mountains and drop um, in the form of snow. And so it's got this combination of a Mediterranean climate, which actually means long, dry summers and not very much precipitation in the summer months. And yet uh, this incredible resource of this snowpack that comes and in the sort of pre-contact times. And actually, we shouldn't even say pre-contact until the American state took over California um, in the middle of the 19th century. You know, basically those uh, that snowpack ran down the mountain every spring. Uh, in a way that was pretty unimpeded. Uh, th- th- there were no major dam projects or attempts to sort of, you know, capture this water. And so what you got in the Central Valley were these incredibly massive rivers, most of which ended up running out into the sea through the, the Bay Delta. But, you know, a couple of them ran into Tulare Lake, which was the biggest lake. This is in the Southern uh, Central Valley, the, the biggest lake west of the uh, Mississippi in the United States. Um and so along with these rivers running through creating, you know, these, you know, in some cases giant lakes, you also had a lot of uh, water percolating down um from this and that that gave rise to this incredible aquifer. Um and something else that I think that is hard for people to imagine today who go through the Central Valley which looks like a desert interrupted by agriculture. So you see these really green fields uh, that are being irrigated and anywhere in between the fields in the summertime, it's bone dry. And it can be shocking to to know that there were massive, massive amounts of wetlands in the area um, that, you know, just had this incredible diversity of wildlife um, flora and fauna and so what, um, and, you know, of course, people lived there as well. There were, um, you know, lots and lots of indigenous people living in the Central Valley. Um, and, uh, you know, a lot of people in, the, in, in, the, in that time would, um, would move from the Central Valley into coastal areas, depending on weather patterns. There's a lot of uh, movement back and forth. But, you know, sort of people coexisted with this, this ecosystem. Um, directed it, managed it, but in a way that that kept it flourishing. And it would be utterly unrecognizable today to someone, you know, if you, if you took someone from the 18th century or even the early 19th century and plunked them down into the modern Central Valley, it would be unrecognizable because, you know, basically Lake Tulare has vanished. It is now literally almond and cotton fields. Um, that water, um, you know, gets diverted before it ever, you know, hits the mountain, you know, the, the valley floor, and sent through various dams and aqueducts to to go to farming. Um, the wetlands are maybe five percent of the original wetlands still exist. They've all been essentially drained for agriculture. And then in the, in the Midwest and the Corn Belt, also a very unique ecosystem. One of the globe's uh, biggest prairie derived ecosystems one of the uh, globe's biggest grasslands also um an incredible the the way you know first of all the the way that the um the and i think your listeners will know a lot of this, but the way that the ecosystem worked up there, it was like a machine for creating soil. So you would get these perennial prairie grasses, you know, dropping roots deep into the ground. You had huge herds of bison coming over and, you know, basically mowing them and recycling nutrients. Once again, um, indigenous people lived there, sort of managed the process, became part of the process, would, um, would do burns that would um, you know, help keep the, the grassland from becoming taken over by forests. Um, also, you had this incredible wonderland of uh, wetlands. And this is because of you know, large annual amounts of rainfall. And once again, you know, all of that has been essentially plowed up. Uh, it would be completely unrecognizable. The wetlands have been drained and planted in corn and soybeans and um and you know an engine of biodiversity these these wetlands were for north american birds or for this entire hemisphere's birds they were this incredible um engine of you know nurseries and um habitat uh, food source um, all of that has been essentially paved over and you know someone who takes someone from 1830 and put them in the modern Corn Belt. And it's an entirely different world. I mean, you're talking about makeovers as intense as going from, you know, this little island off of the East coast, um, turning into Manhattan. It's, it's that much of a transformation.
1: And these ecosystems have been transformed into these agricultural juggernauts, but really at this point, they're extremely fragile. They're very precarious. They're headed toward, as you say in the book, collapse. Talk about that and how that's been playing out.
0: You know, in the Central Valley, um, so you, you've got these these two incredible sources of water. You've got the Sierra Nevada snowpack and then these aquifers under the Central Valley um, that, you know, in a lot of senses, and I think uh, talking to an audience that um, that knows farming, you can see what an agricultural paradise it is because if you have a long very warm summer that's very dry, then your um your your pest pressures are a lot lower. There's a lot less danger of mold and there's a lot less insect life because there's there's less water feeding that sort of food chain. And if you can push a button and get irrigation on top of that, so you've got all this photosynthesis, you've got all this sunlight, you've got um you've got no rain, you know, hitting leaves and, and giving up a place for mold to grow, but you can still irrigate and you can do it fairly precisely with modern irrigation systems, then you, you've got a great place to grow fruits and vegetables and, and nuts. But the problem is that the sort of capitalist agriculture, this sort of globalized, um, this idea of feeding the world, of gro- uh, growing for a global market, of you know, basically telling the rest of the United States, don't worry too much about fruit and vegetable production. We've got it. We've got this incredible abundance coming out of California. It, what it's given rise to is more demand for water than the system can supply. And what you would want, um, and, and the way that you could really manage a resource like that would be to think of the aquifer as a bank account and live off of the annual snowpack. But to get you through hard times, you, you could tap the aquifer and then it would replenish in, in wet years. But what's happened is we've seen over the course of the 21st century, the last couple, uh, last two or three decades, we've seen a marked decline in the snowpack because of climate change. And so the snowpack is, um, is shrinking um, on average, but at the same time, water demand is going up and so agriculture in that region is using the aquifer not as a rainy, you know, a, a dry day bank account, let's say, but they're using it as just an annual resource. And so what you get is essentially a race to the bottom of the aquifer. And until 2015, the um, the aquifers were completely unregulated. So if we're neighbors and I've got, you know, 5,000 acres of almonds and you've got you know uh, a, a hundred acre fruit vegetable farm, diversified farm with maybe some li- some livestock, I am gonna have a much bigger well than you are. And when the next drought hits, I'm probably gonna be, I'm already using more water than I'm getting from my annual allotment of uh, snow melt water. And so when the big drought hits and you need to tap that water, I will probably have taken the water level down below your what your well can get and so what you've got in the area what you get in the area is this essentially this arms race of well digging and the only the bigger operations can win that race and and so essentially what we're seeing is a catastrophic drawdown of the aquifer and as you get lower and lower into it you get more and more salt buildup. you know the, the water that comes out is um, there's higher salt concentrations, there's higher concentrations of naturally occurring ke- occurring chemicals like arsenic. and you're already seeing salinification happening in the Central Valley because the water is um, is getting more and more salty. And we've had a couple of uh, since the drought ended in 2016, we've had some pretty decent years but still below long-term averages, we're still overtapping the aquifer. And actually this 2015 law has ordered every one of these um, watersheds to come into balance. In other words, you can't keep drawing down the aquifer. By 2040, you've got to show that you're in balance. And that is by all accounts gonna cause a big change in California agriculture. Because there are going to have to be um, hundreds of thousands of acres go fallow, people are going to have to cut back. and the projections are not so there's this up there climate projections are telling us that if climate change continues, we could see essentially a zero average snowpack by the middle of the 21st century and um, and so you know we're looking at severe changes coming our way, but farms in the region continue. To draw down the aquifer.
1: Yeah, and and you detail in the book the town of Alpa. Am I saying that right? Yes, Alpaw, California. Yep. And people there, and this is just one example. I mean, this is this is going on across the state, but it's a small town of farm workers, and they don't have access to clean drinking water. It's really just sort of Flint, Michigan, just spread out across the state. Talk about these farm workers who who are are being disenfranchised from access to drinking water by the very companies that they're working for?
0: Yeah, so I went out to Alpaw, uh, which is this, a small farm worker community in the Southern Central Valley called the San Joaquin Valley at the height of the drought, uh, probably 2014. And it was really interesting time to be there because because of the drought. And when I say drought, I mean what was happening in California in those years was essentially a zero snowpack. Like basically mm-hmm. the winter storms that they count on to you know fill the snowpack didn't come uh, and so farms were cut off from surface water and all the entire central valley was going on groundwater maybe a little bit of marginally uh, marginal amount of saved surface water from the past from past years but you know getting in 2014 2015 that's pretty much dried up and you're essentially the whole machine is based on pumping aquifers and so there were these Draconian laws and necessary laws put into place for for people, for for residents of California on, you know, don't water your lawn, cut back on all necessary water. But there were no uh, restrictions placed on agriculture Um, and agriculture actually uses 80 percent of the developed water in the state. And so agriculture is a big user, but all the onus went on individuals. And it gets really ridiculous in a town like Alpa because you've got you know the average income there is around twenty thousand dollars per family. Essentially, people living in poverty, working as farm workers, and their water supply that um, we were you know at this point we they, they had two wells. One of the wells had gone dry, um, and the other well was the the you know it was pretty deep, but the water down there was uh just packed with arsenic uh there was you know it's not a um it's not that agro agrochemicals were poisoning it it's naturally occurring chemical that it gets more concentrated as you get down so they were um, well over the epa limit of what you can have for arsenic and so the people in the town were forced to buy bottled water which they Last time I checked a year or so ago, they still were. They, they still had um, arsenic levels that were, that were too high. And because of these restrictions on people, you, you know, I saw in that town people with really modest houses with a couple of fruit trees outside their houses where the fruit trees are drooping because it is literally against the law to water them. So these are low income people, low food security, not a whole lot of availability of fresh foods. And they're being told by law enforcement that they can't water their trees. And it was quite stark to go. I was driving with the, the guy who was managing the water system. He took me out, you know, less than a mile outside of the town limit to this vast, amazing, you know, essentially, as far as the eye can see, pistachio grove that was being put in. Um, and they were putting in the pisachios, and, you know, in some parts of the field, they were you know, putting in new saplings. In other parts of the field, they were installing the irrigation system. And then in other parts, we saw a crew deepening a well. And all of this was completely unrestricted. You know, use as much water as you want. Uh, whereas the people in the town are literally paying for poison water, having to buy a bottled water and, and can't water their trees. And, you know, there's a question like, why were they planting pistachios and not almonds? And the answer to that question is the water in that area, the, the aquifer is so low that the water is too salty for almonds and uh, pistachios have a higher salt tolerance than, um, than almonds do. And and so this is, so they had this, this groundwater law now that that region, which I should say is at the base of Tulare Lake. It's like right in the middle of this Um, This giant lake that has been um, vanished for almost a century. So this this pistachio. So we have this this groundwater law coming in that's going to force all these regions to go into compliance. But this is I witnessed a pistachio grove going in in um, in an aquifer that was way out of whack that was causing all kinds of problems. And what I was looking at was an investment of many, many millions of dollars. And it was a bet on them, the, whatever, whoever that investor was, being able to make lots of money off of that investment, requiring endless amounts of water every year. And that is going to cause some serious conflicts going into this groundwater law when it kicks into in 2040. And I, I can tell you that there are many almond, um, you know, since I, I wrote that, um, almond and pistachio plantings have not stopped growing. And so you're talking about, um, people making, um, investments that require annual deposit, a- annual access to water. And so, you know, obviously if you're growing perennial crops, I mean, if you're growing annual crops and there's a bad water year, you can take the year off. You can go fallow. You can probably get some insurance money for it. But if you're, inve- if you've got millions of dollars invested in pistachio groves, And you can't do that and you keep hitting that aquifer every year and it's going, it is, we are in a race to the bottom there.
1: We're going to hit pause on this interview for a brief segment from our sponsor, Barn to Door.
0: Hey, this is Sebastian from Barn to Door. We're excited to be sharing a new series of farmer spotlights during the Tractor Time podcast and segments like these. In today's Farmer Spotlight, we have Ashley Clark from Sacred Roots Maple in New York. We asked her what motivated her to grow their farm's business online. And here's what she had to say.
3: I absolutely love being a part of the online community because you can meet so many great people and hear their stories. And I think that's the part that I really feel is what connects people to farming i think that there's this huge disconnect often but once people can connect with a family or a group of people and and hear their story they feel like they're also part of the experience and the process too so yeah people aren't necessarily coming out and tapping our trees and making the maple syrup but they can get to know us by visiting us or reading about us online and they feel like they're part of the connection so maybe when they order A thing of maple syrup and it's sitting on their table for breakfast they're able to talk about hey like this is from upstate new york and this is how they they boiled this to make this and it gains more of an appreciation And i think that's something that we really find valuable when we're looking for farms to connect with or buying our meat or other products locally we try to really hear that story so that we can support that group or that family and continue that process
0: if you want to hear more about ashley's story go to barntodoor.com/tractortime. slash tractor time. Thanks for listening.
1: Yeah. One farmer you introduced in the book is Joe Del Bosky. He grows melons and almonds in California, and he seems like a highly competent and successful farmer, but yet he's hamstrung by all these sort of forces beyond his control. You write that he has a thriving business built on shaky ground. What does his story tell us about how actual farmers fit into this industrialized system?
0: yeah so he he's a really interesting guy um, he's a son of a farm worker who scraped you know um, scraped and saved and um, got his father you know became a farm manager and he scraped and saved in the eighties farm crisis and was able to come up with enough money to buy land at rock bottom prices when land prices fell in the eighties and um, has become a you know a landowner of a couple thousand acres and So he's got this business where he grows these heirloom organic melons that are essentially sold at Whole Foods. They're very, very seasonal. Um, you can only get them, I think in the late summer months. And they're, you know, he's got enough to distribute them nationwide through, um, through Whole Foods. And these are a very labor intensive product because the sort of modern melons that we get you know, they can be machine harvested. So you can, you know, just, these are the sort of flavorless melons you get at the hotel, um, you know, buffet table in the morning. But his melons are really delicate and they're delicious and they require hand labor. And so he's got the, uh, it was there when he had crews of of workers picking the melons and it's extremely skilled work uh, because the melons don't all ripen at the same time and it takes skill to know you know, pick this one, leave that one there. So he's got this skilled workforce and he gets a good premium on them and it's all working out pretty well. But essentially, he is counting for his profitability on some really awful labor laws. You know, basically, a lot of the labor protections that most Americans enjoy, like Minimum wage, like the 40-hour work week, time and a half overtime that came about in the New Deal do not apply on, on, at the national level to farm workers. And California has been slowly bringing farm workers into essentially the 1940s by giving them these, um, these protections. And the final one is time and a half overtime which I think kicks in in 20, I think this year, 2021. And when I was out there in 2019, what he was telling me was that, you know, look, um, you know, when we're in the growing season and the harvesting season, we have crews working 60 hour weeks because we, you know, we need to get that product up and out. And if we don't, then, you know, you've got melons getting overripe in the field and they're worthless. And so it's a very, labor intensive process in that time. And if we have to pay everyone time and a half, our profit's gone and it doesn't make any sense for us to continue this business. And so he's thinking about expanding his almond um, orchards, but his almond orchards are also in a pinch because, you know, he's also a really good grower. He gets a good harvest, Um, He gets a good price on his almonds, but he's in an area that he doesn't have great water rights to these um to the sort of surface water coming off the of Sierra Nevada and so he's got to buy water on the open market a lot of the times and the aquifer under him is already dry it's already or the the water is so low quality that it can't be used to um to irrigate crops and so his almond business as surface water declines as the certain snowpack packed de- declines, he's not going to be able, he's worried about having water to feed his current al- almond groves. And he doesn't think he can handle expanding them, expanding his groves because he doesn't think there's going to be enough water in the future. And so he's feeling, you know, when I talked to him in 2019, he was feeling pretty hemmed in by these circumstances, like, Right now, I've got a successful business. I'm making profits. Um, I've got a kid who wants to take over the business, but where's it going to go? Um, and you know, he was explaining a lot to me about how a lot, you know, anything that's hand labor in California is already moving down to Mexico because if you when you cross the border, you get a lot of the same growing conditions, and unfortunately, a lot of the same water conditions, but. Uh, labor has a lot less power in Mexico, and so um, people are, are paid less. And I think it was his um, his asparagus crop, or yeah, I think it was asparagus that he used to have a, a, a foothold as an asparagus grower. But he's decided that it's too um, labor intensive, and so he's already shifted out of asparagus. And he says that asparagus uh, has declined in the Central Valley and exploded in Mexico. And uh, I just want to make clear, I'm made, making an argument that California shouldn't include farm workers in modern labor protections. Um, what I am making an argument for is that these labor protections should be universal and that Mexican, you know, basically there should be social movements to make sure that Mexican laborers are are taken care of as well. Um, but it is a factor in what is you know it, it actually is driving more almond uh, and and pistachio expansion because there are very few crops as mechanized as almond and pistachios the planting is very capital intensive it's basically machines that do it the harvest is these big shakers like one guy can harvest you know many many hundreds of acres in this, a single day in one of these shaker machines it requires some pruning, which is uh, which is hand labor, but you know, very very capital intensive um, operation. And so, California's labor laws are one of the things driving this this push to almonds and pistachios. But it's a dead end because of the water situation.
1: I wanted to take a step back for a minute and talk about your past and, and present as a um, as a journalist. How did you start? Uh, reporting on conventional agriculture, industrial agriculture, our food system. Um, when did that start for you? Um, how did you, what was the entry point? And, and I bring this up because I think it'd be a good way for us to ease into the conversation about sort of the the sources of power and uh, these cartels and oligopolies that dominate agriculture in our country and and globally.
0: Yeah. So I, what I had been a a financial journalist uh, living in New York City and got, um, was really into food and was in a community garden in Brooklyn. Um, and in my day job, I was sort of there to learn about how capitalism works and how financial capitalism works and corporate capitalism, but I wasn't really into the job as a sort of calling. And meanwhile, I'm getting more and more into food and food politics and sort of got swept up into there was a push by then Mayor Giuliani, who's um, taken you know some interesting turns in recent years. But, um, you know, back then, Giuliani was, um, you know, also a fairly dreadful human being and was trying to crush New York City's community gardens. So I got caught up in this movement to. Um, preserve them. And I just started asking a lot of questions about the food system at that time and who's up power in the food system. And, you know, the driving force for Giuliani was basically his real estate cronies um, that later came out. And so that was, that was sort of my crash course into food politics and my um, long-term girlfriend, still my girlfriend, her family had a farm in North Carolina and there was a change in her in her parents' relationship and you know basically it seemed like they were going to se- have to sell the farm and we decided to move down with some other friends and take it over and start farming and sort of put my money where, where my mouth is this is what I'm really into let's dive into it so i left this um this career in financial journalism and did that but in in that time i developed a ability to write daily and I knew how I had been covering the stock market. And so I knew how to sort of look at corporations and their business models and how they functioned and how Wall Street analysts saw them. And I get to the farm, throw myself into farming. We also did farm dinners uh, where we would take our produce and meat grown by nearby farmers and cook it up and, you know, serve people kind of a pop up restaurant in, in the farmhouse. and. um and writing on a daily basis is sort of this missing limb, and and meanwhile I'm, you know, reading more, you know, reading my sort of Wendell Berry, Michael Pollan. This is before I'm the worst Dilemma, but I'm you know reading his previous articles, and I started uh, a blog. I said, you know what, I've got some things to say about this. Uh, I'm thinking about this. I'm um, I'm covering it. So in 2005, I started a blog called Bittergreens Journal, and I it was named that because our sort of flagship uh, produce was salad greens, like spicy salad greens. And immediately I started writing about industrial ag. Um, I started writing about um, sort of analyzing what Monsanto was up to at the time and what other big companies like Archer Daniels Midland were up to. And so I, I was applying my skills as a financial journalist with a critique of the food system developed as a community gardener from the perspective of someone who was trying to scratch out a living uh, farming. And so that's kind of how it all started.
1: Back in 2016, you visited Monsanto's headquarters. Um, I think this was just before um, the Bayer acquisition. What did you learn there about corporate power?
0: <laughs> what I learned there, I think, um, in the end as I think back on it was just sort of a case study in corporate cynicism of, you know, the ability to sort of change your message according to both audience and circumstance. I mean, I think by the time I got there in 2016, the the period when the agro, you know, the biotechnology industry could say, Hey, um, trust us because we've got all these wonder seeds coming. We've got these, you know, what you know, more nutritious crops, um, um disease-tolerant crops, you know, these crops that are gonna reduce pesticide use. That fiction was already unraveling. And I think that they figured that the herbicide tolerance problem that they had launched, um, you know, the widespread resistance to Roundup Herbicide, uh, they realized that their solution to it by adding dicamba or 24D to the mix was going to cause lots and lots of problems. And so they kind of backed off of that. And and they also, you know, I think they also realized that they weren't going to be coming up with, you know, corn that could sequester its own nitrogen or, you know, these these crops that they had been babbling about for a couple of decades weren't coming into um into being because the genome of a plant is super complicated. And the way that a plant takes up nitrogen or takes up water isn't one gene or two genes or 10 genes. It's many, many genes. And, you know, but, you know, like you can't take a gene from a cactus and put it into corn and make corn not need that much water. By the time you've tweaked everything and worked everything out, you've recreated cactus. Um, mm-hmm. and, and I think they were coming to that realization. And so I got this story from Robert Fraley, who's one of the sort of innovators of GMO technology. He was the chief technology op- uh, officer of Monsanto for, for decades. I, I think from the its start as an agricultural company to the, to the bitter end, um, I get this story from him. Oh, yeah, you know, we use GMOs. We use GMO technology for a couple of things, but really it's not that useful to us. What we really are is a classical breeding company. That's really what our bread and butter is is we do um, high tech classical breeding, you know, marker assisted breeding, but it's not, it's not GMOs. Um, and uh, that was the story I got. And, and the ultimate, I think sort of the punchline to my visit there was, I mean, you know, we're going around to each of the different, we're in the research facility outside of St. Louis and we're going around to each of the departments and getting their spiel about, you know, what the awesome stuff they're doing. And then we go into the, um, soil uh, microbiology department Um, and this department is going to be you know generating soil microbes that are going to revolutionize farming Um, and and so I you know we go in there and I start hearing from the chief scientist in the area and he literally sounds like he could be reading an article from Acres magazine about the importance of soil um, biota and how you know soil is teeming. And did you know, there's a trillion, you know, living beings and a handful of soil and how important they are to recycling nutrients and feeding plants. And it's a symbiotic relationship. And so I'm just getting this whole spiel from him. And, um, and I'm starting to, you know, kind of get a little bored. And, you know, my mind is wandering, I look over to the wall, and at the wall, they have these cases that are sort of, Um, these sort of glass cases showing their their latest and greatest products and with a little information about them. And I'm looking at this product that they're selling to farmers as a a soil supplement to put on corn. And it's got this, you know, soil bacteria name on it. And I'm looking at the ingredients. And the second ingredient is a fungicide. And it happened to be a fungicide that I had just been writing about the week before that is becoming ubiquitous in the Corn Belt it doesn't seem to do that much to increase yield and it was showing potential to be a brain damaging chemical and here it is on this sort of magic dust they're selling to farmers that includes you know micro you know basically like soil microbes that are supposed to improve their um their soil and so i said to the guy hey isn't that a so can you tell me a little bit about the soil microbe, and he goes into it, and it's a fungus. Uh, and I'm like, "So you're selling a fungus packaged along with a fungicide?" And he's like, "Oh, well, yeah, yeah, of course. I mean that's just temporary <laughs> as we perfect this this process, right. um, we're, we're not going to need that." And later, uh, you know, I get back to my um, to my house, and I'm googling this um, this soil microbe. And it turns out to be this extremely common soil microbe that is, you know, in a a normal person's yard, um, much less in in farms. And so they're selling this product with all of this rhetoric and and BS around it that is essentially another way to move this chemical. And, you know, to me, that in the end kind of said it all about um, about the company and uh, something else that. that I should say is that Robert Fraley, I asked him point blank, are you guys, um, because at that time they were desperately trying to buy Syngenta because Syngenta is a rival that has a decent seed portfolio, but what it's really known for is this vast pesticide portfolio. And it seemed like Monsanto, who, who had this big seed portfolio, but a relatively modest pesticide portfolio, was desperately trying to merge with Syngenta to get its hands on more pesticides. And I said, "Um, are you guys um, still trying to buy Syngenta? Oh no, no. We decided to go it alone. Um, Not long after they made another aggressive push for Syngenta. So he totally bullshitted me on that. Um, And then not long after that, the other, you know, basically the same kind of deal happened, but from the other direction. And that is that Bear. Uh, which is a company that has lots of pesticides and a modest seed portfolio, ended up buying Monsanto and creating this juggernaut that has, you know, the biggest seed portfolio. And one of the two, I think, along with um, Syngenta, the biggest pesticide portfolio. So, you know, Robert Fraley was totally snowing me the whole time.
1: Right. I mean, it's sort of well-trod ground, the abuses of big ag cartels. You know, we're we're familiar with you know, the environmental consequences, um, or at least our listeners are. I'm kind of interested in hearing more about sort of the, the future of farming from a industrial standpoint. You know, they might call it precision farming or digital farming. Some might call it farming without farmers. I mean, for a long time, for decades, it's been sort of the system of debt, you know, like a company like John Deere will sell you a bunch of equipment and you, and you, Pay it off for the rest of your life. And increasingly, these are sophisticated machines that you can't even fix yourself. And so they're getting revenue from that. Um, But eventually, are are farmers just going away?
0: That appears to be the plan. Um, It appears to be the plan that um, this sort of, I mean, I think industrial agriculture at its root is this sort of enlightenment dream of rationalizing this very messy process. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, farming, there's, you know, it's hard to imagine a messier process in farming, literally dealing with dirt. Um, weather is a really big deal, weather's unpredictable, weather's getting less predictable because of climate change. And um, or insofar as it is predictable, it's just getting worse. It's just getting harsher and harsher. And industrial agriculture wants to take that messiness away and make as many things as possible, essentially automated and push button. And I think that is the vision. I mean, we've, we've seen without really interruption, consolidation of farmland in the Corn Belt, um, fewer and fewer farms, but bigger and bigger farms. So, you know, mid-sized farms continue to go out of business and get their land consolidated into larger operations. And so those forces are still at play and precision agriculture offers the promise of continuing that process. So with roundup pretty seeds and a big combine, a farmer who could maybe have effectively managed 500 acres on his own a couple of decades ago, let's say now can now can, can do 2,500 acres. But if you add, um, just, you know, very few decisions to be made. Um, most things can be done with the push of a button. Then maybe that goes up to 10,000 acres. And so it requires, you know, that promises requiring less and less human skill, human intervention. And, you know, what, what these companies are doing is they're saying, hey, um, you know, let us be your one-stop shop. Let us be your supermarket for yeah. seeds and chemicals. And I think that was the whole premise of the Bear deal, your Monsanto deal is if you have all the pesticides and all the seeds, then you can tell farmers don't go anywhere else. We'll be your Amazon. And also you give us your data. So you on your John Deere combine and tractor will have these sensors and these sensors will capture all kinds of data. We'll also have satellite data uh, from your farm about like, how green your field is that can tell us about fertility and do you need a little bit more fertilizer, give us all your data and we will give you back recommendations that you can just follow, you know, spray this, this fungicide, spray this insecticide, use seeds treated with these chemicals. And we've got, you know, we can create a custom seed coating for you um, for different parts of your field. And it's just essentially just sort of giving those companies all the power. And you know, there's various things you can do with that much data. You can trade off of it based on, you know, it just opens it just opens opportunities for those companies. They can get a very early take before the USDA report comes on how corn yields are doing in the Midwest. They can trade on that um, in, in in some cases. A company like Cargill, at least at one time, had a hedge fund. Uh, what's to stop? Some of these giant seed conglomerates from creating hedge funds or collaborating with them, but you know the the end game to that is fewer and fewer farmers doing more and more land with less and less people on the land, and all of the trends we've seen in the Midwest about you know the the small town drugstore closes, the grocery store closes, the school closes um uh, and just the sort of rise of, you know, things like as the economy declines, um, you know, drug problems arise in, in their place, all of those dysfunctions that we've seen that have led to arguably a lot of, um, xenophobia. You know, like I, I witnessed it myself in Iowa, um, in a section, in a episode that didn't make, I, I didn't end up putting in the book, but people, I met people on the ground in Iowa complaining bitterly about industrial. Some of the depredations of industrial agriculture, like all the giant trucks going through their community to pick up and drop off hogs and feed at these giant cafos, messing up the road, not having any responsibility for it, you know, putting pollution in the air. Um, But their answer isn't, "Let's crack down on industrial agriculture. Let's crack down on the immigrants working in the plant," um, who. Uh, working in the, um, working in the meat processing plant that are the, o- it's the only economy happening in the area. Those workers are the problem, not the companies. And, and so you get this sort of, you know, those forces of depopulating the town, making industrial agriculture the only game in town, uh, that have caused a lot of political changes in our country will, um, are set to continue. Um, and the, you know the end of the mid-sized diversified farmer who's got some cattle um, that go that go out into rotation that have corn and soybeans, but also might have a third crop crop like rye and oats that are you know making decisions based on the the, the ecology of that piece of land um, that becomes more and more rare. And you know I should add that I think that um, a lot of the there's a danger that when you add um like carbon markets to the the system of you know ever increasing digital agriculture you can get some real perverse uh incentives where you know farmers are being rewarded for activities like round or bloody no till that doesn't- requ- um that that doesn't uh sequester very much carbon if any at all but are getting carbon payments for it and it's just building onto the system dominated by these giant companies. And meanwhile, the spring storms that I document in the book hitting bare soil because all of they grow is corn and soybeans, and there's nothing buffering the soil in the winter or spring, um, those erosion events just continue happening. Um, soil continues unraveling, and yet carbon payments are going to these giant farms.
1: Right, and I think that's something that's hard to understand is the financialization of of farming and you you alluded to it a few moments ago, and just now um talk a little bit more about that and how and why that's important to understand
0: yeah, so I think um you know there is this um you know in the financialization of everything that we've seen in the past thirty or forty years um farmland has come into that maw um I think you know at a pretty advanced phase in California. We've seen, you know, you know, basically uh for something to become a financial class, it it has to have a story. So a financial class is something that a financial advisor will say, hey, if you have, if you want a diversified portfolio, you've got to have this in it. You've got to have stocks, you've got to have bonds, you've got to have real estate. And farmland is emerging as something on that level. And the story behind it is that when you buy a piece of farmland, um, the value of it's probably gonna rise. And we've seen a long-term trend of rising farmland values in the United States. So you, you, know, you buy it and you hold it and you're gonna, um, you're gonna cash in um, when you sell it. And then not only does it appreciate in value, but it also throws off income. And so in California, if you have a, a crop like almonds that has this big expanding market, um, the rising middle class, you know, Americans are eating more almonds, but we don't we're not a big enough place to um absorb all the production coming out of California. They need growing foreign markets. And so the growing middle classes of Asia are you know eating more luxury products like almonds, and the industry is very deftly marketing them to consumers in Asia uh, and also Europe. And so you're getting this this rising almond consumption that you can tell for an investor, it's like, I've got this rising market. I know almond prices aren't going to go down. They're probably going to go up. And I can make income every year, sort of like dividends on a stock. And I can cash in when I sell it. It's a great thing. And so, you know, I talk about in the book, um, this, you know, push of hedge funds and big insurance companies investing in California farmland and you also see it in the Midwest. And where you're really seeing it now is an um, area I didn't uh, get to in the book, and that is the um, the Delta of the, um, of the Southern United States. The Mississippi Delta states um, are coming under a lot of scrutiny by investors as a great place to grow food. You can grow corn and soybeans, if that makes sense. You can grow cotton, if that makes sense. You can do sort of industrial scale vegetable production. If um if that makes sense, it's um a little bit more versatile than the Corn Belt. And so we're seeing hedge funds and um Bill Gates um recently has been buying a lot of farmland yeah. in um in the Delta. And um and what these kind of investors, you know, their their time horizon is you know, it isn't super short term, but it's also like 20 years, maybe if, you know, that would be a a long time horizon for one of these investors. It isn't future generations. So they have different incentives. If you buy some California land, you just want there to be enough, this uh, at least an illusion of enough water to sell it at a nice price in 20 years. And meanwhile, wring all the water out of it you can. Um, and so you get, you know, people with a lot more short term. Incentives um, on how that land is used, then you get when there are cooperatives or um, individual people owning land, and I, I think we're going to see that more and more as um, you know the U.S. investor class goes looking for hedges against inflation, for stability, for just a place to park money where there's a, cha- a good chance of appreciation and annual income.
1: You know the, the underlying ethos now it seems of these large corporate entities that control a lot of agriculture is that the problems are too big Um, climate change with soil degradation we really need large-scale changes and shifts and we can manage that for you we can do that for you we we have the apparatus to implement this stuff we have the ability to move farmers off the land and to do it more efficiently that's that's sort of the the sales pitch: is that we can do this better than anyone else because we have the data, we have we have the tech. And yet, you you see people who are rising up against that, particularly in India right now, um, yes. with the with the protests that are going on there. And it seems to be sort of a a statement about the value of indigenous ways of knowing when it comes to growing food. And you know, with what we're seeing with COVID and the precarity of of the food system. It, it seems incredibly dangerous uh, to me to consolidate power in the hands of a few and to disempower people from basic skills like growing their own food.
0: Yeah, totally agree. Um, and I think that, you know, an, you know, COVID is a great example. And another one is, um, you know, just that, you know, complete chaos unleashed on Texas um, yeah. with these, you know, anomalous... Um, Snowstorms and winter weather events causing grids to crash. You know that plus terrible policy in Texas causing grids to crash and supply chains to snarl up. And it, you know it just shows. I mean, I think that we have for for a century, we have at least a century, we have moved our food system. We, we've sort of. Use it to maximize efficiency. The idea was, you know, a giant slaughterhouse is great because you can get a bunch of people in there to work on the line and get a bunch of technology like, um, you know, spraying, you know, sprays of essentially bleach onto the meat to sterilize things. Um, We can produce a whole lot of meat really fast and really cheaply. And, hey, if we um, use undo- un- undocumented, essentially disenfranchised workers, and we can pay them less. And that just adds to the efficiency. But we see that throughout the food chain. of just this sort of fixation on efficiency. And I think that efficiency is great, but you've got to balance it with robustness and res- resiliency. Mm-hmm. And I think that there, you know, we have to you know, these events like COVID-19, like the, the Texas storm, remind us of the importance of building redundancy into the system that, you know, uh, sacrificing a little bit of efficiency. Like if you had smaller meatpacking plants with fewer workers that were where the line speed is moving more slowly, then you wouldn't have to sacrifice you know, 300, I forget the latest numbers, but, you know, 300 plus human lives to keep our meat system flowing during the COVID-19 pandemic. You know, you could probably create safe social distance conditions in those plants. Um, They would be less efficient, but they would be more resilient to a shock like COVID-19. And I think, you know, similar things with, Economic shocks to come. You know, in my um, in my book, I have a chapter about an event that's um, pretty likely to happen, and that is the Central Valley that we were just talking about. The flip side of drought is massive flood, Um, and the same forces that make storms, the winter storms, um, less frequent in California, also makes them more powerful. And, you know, there's a a pretty high likelihood of a storm coming in the next 20 or 30 years that could well put the entire Central Valley under 30 feet of water. And I was thinking about that during the Texas disasters of last week, like, you know, basically just the thin, you you know, society does hang on this very thin thread now of power grids. Well, something like that would wipe out power grids for millions and millions and millions of people. And it would happen, it would, you know, just the the, the damage there is really hard to fathom, the human cost of it. Um, but we also have to think about it is our sort of uh, fruit and vegetable basket. And it would, you know, it would just completely throw our food system way off course if this disaster were to happen. And we would be a lot more resilient and robust if we could build up fruit and vegetable production in many other places, a lot in the United States, a lot more than it is now. And California would be less important. And I think that would be really smart. But just an example of, you know, leaning on California is very efficient, but it doesn't make us very resilient.
1: Right. And you talk about that in the book, this philosophy of specialization, the idea that a region should focus in not necessarily on feeding itself, but on getting really good at producing one, two or three things, and then exporting those goods. You, you, you offer a critique of that in the book Um, talk more about what you were just alluding to, which is sort of the, the building up of redundancies and resilience through, you know, regional food hubs.
0: Yeah. So, you know, there's this idea of comparative advantage and, you know, I, Mm I, Called this economist out for, um, for a, a, a bit of a beating in my book for, um, for saying, hey, you know, this is like maybe 2000, sometime in the 2000s, this economist who was writing on Freakonomics' blog was, you know, basically like, what is all this nonsense about local and regional food production? Haven't these people heard of California, you know, California's got this great um, natural advantage in growing food. It's got this great Mediterranean climate. Um, he didn't mention it, but, you know, California you know, California's always benefited from proximity to Mexico and the fact that it used to be Mexico. So it's got this, you know, this essentially captive workforce that works really cheap, although that is um, starting to change, as I talked about earlier. It's got the Sierra Nevada snowpack. We should be growing most of our fruits and vegetables in California and other regions should be um, doing something different. And I think he actually wrote that in 2011. And that very year is when California goes into this massive drought. And um, it just made me reflect about how there I think there is something to comparative advantage. It's not it's not a stupid idea, uh, but there's a lot of false economies within it, like California has much less of a comparative advantage when you factor in the fact that it's drawing down its water supply in this catastrophic way. And when you put that into it, and then you also add this flooding factor, which I don't think very many people were thinking about in 2011, its comparative advantage starts to look a little bit different. And it starts to, even within that logical framework, it starts to make a lot more sense to build redundancy into the system because the very non-zero chance of decline and or interruption of uh, of that resource and you know i think that um it's incumbent on us as writers and economists and and just thinkers in general to you know when we're thinking through those things asking you know what are the real advantage advantages of a given area And what are the, what am I not seeing? Like this, maybe this is too good to be true. And I think that particular economist uh, fell into that trap. But I, I just think, you know, California with its incredible natural advantages that I've laid out should be a great, will always be as long as we exist as a society and a species, a great place to grow food. It should overproduce food for its own population and be a regional food provider for the Southwest or or for the West coast. But I think we should de-emphasize it as the national source of food. And just, you know, as I put it, de-Californify, you know, in Texas and Colorado and the Northeast and in the Southeast and other parts of the country, there's been this great movement of small scale and medium scale farmers but um, it's still relatively small. California still dominates the food chain. And I think we should, you know, as a national policy and as local and regional policies, we should set ourselves to increasing that, finding out what do farmers need? uh, What sort of land policies, how can we tweak land policies to make uh, farming more profitable? What sort of infrastructure gaps exist at local and regional levels? that we can make public investments in to increase regional food production. And if we do that, then um, if the California aquifer you know, dries up or it gets, the state gets swamped under a huge flood or a giant earthquake, that could be a local problem and resources can flow to help fixing it, but it doesn't have to um, cause these ripple effects nationwide. Um, and so that's sort of what I'd like to see.
1: You know um chris newman who's a a farmer in virginia has written a lot about sort of the pitfalls of the small farmer ideal yeah um and how it's likely not going to mount an effective defense against big ag um i'm curious to see what you think about newman's ideas but i think you're familiar with him and Uh, yeah and and also sort of how that fits into maybe your own vision for how small farmers can sort of unite and find some collective power there.
0: Yeah. So I finished my book before I was reading Chris, but I think, I think the ideas in my last couple of sections of perilous bounty and his ideas aren't in contradiction Mm -hmm. and we're both sort of saying similar things from a different direction. And, and that is that like, you know, basically I asked a question, of, you know, I used sort of the publication of Omnivore's Dilemma in 2006 as a landmark. So there was enough energy in the movement to pull Pollen into writing this book. And then, so already by 2006, we were well into this rise of farmers markets and CSAs. And he writes this book and really popularizes the idea. And I feel like, you know, around that time, um, there was just a lot of despair over national politics, you know, the Iraq War and Le- second election of George W. Bush, and there's a lot of despair over national politics. And I think that book lands at a time when people are ready to think about something else and um, turn their vision, you know, in, in a more local direction. And so you get this other big burst of interest in local food and farmers' markets and farm-to-table restaurants, and all that takes off. And I, I know I was part of that. I was, you know, I started working on a small scale farm in 2004. So I, I was part of that movement, but I ask at the end of my book, which is was written in late. This section was written in late 2019, you know, what have we really gained in that 15 years since? Or if you want to go back to the seventies and Wendell Berry or, you know, wherever you want to start your, you know, when did the local food m- movement start? W- what have we gotten in terms of tamping down and replacing the power of industrial agriculture and industrial food and stopping in psychological damages? And the answer was not very far. Um, mm-hmm. and, um, and so this model that I was part of, that we've all, you know, Acres has been part of, yeah, it it has really shown its limits. And and yeah. so my answer is I, I I guess I just kind of um outlined it. It's sort of like, you know, figuring out what this is a public problem. This is a societal problem. And we spend twenty, you know, f- let's say five to twenty-five billion dollars a year or and more in recent years on, on farm programs. We are pumping money, public money into the ag system. What if we use that money in other ways? Like what if there were, what if we ask fundamental questions about what, what kind of food system we wanted and put public resources behind them? And, and so I think that that's sort of my answer. And, and, and Chris asks very provocative questions about the sort of single farmer model and um, wants to, push over to an idea of, you know, essentially indigenous ways of of land stewardship that I think in the Western context, the starting point is cooperatives and webs of cooperatives. And I think that these two ideas are very compatible, like those cooperatives take resources. And I I think the, the biggest resource, and I think Chris would agree with this, uh, that's lacking is farmland being so exp- or land in general being so expensive, and there's got to be some ways around um, ways that we can figure out how to make land. You know, like if you're if you want to farm and make money selling fruits and vegetables and make a decent living, then you probably want to be near some kind of urban center because that's where you know prosperous consumers who can afford you know well grown fruits and vegetables live that's there's population density but paradoxically um land outside of those areas is, is very expensive, like if you want to tap the New York City market, you're competing with a hedge fund guy who yeah. um, wants to um, put his second home on your um you know Hudson Valley dream farm and that's dramatically drives up the cost of that farmland and you know that's true everywhere it's true in Austin you know every place I've been um, now I'm living in North Carolina you know it's really the the best markets for um, local food are places like Asheville and the Research Triangle of Raleigh-Durham and those are also places where land is most expensive and so figuring out land use policies and creating support for new cooperatives, I think these are, and this is where the real cutting edge of thought, I think it has to be. And it's sort of my book ends at the, um, at the edge of that. And I think there are multiple other books to be written about how to develop a system that actually makes sense. Um, but I think a, a lot of people's ideological pro, uh, priors will, um, well, we'll have to get shaken up about, you know, just things like what does land ownership mean in the United States? Yeah. This is essentially settler colonial way of thinking about it that, you know, I as an individual get a deed to this piece of land and I can pass it on to my heirs or sell it um, to the market. Is, is that really compatible with creating the sustainable food system? I think Chris is asking really provocative questions along those lines.
1: Yeah. Well, Tom, do you have any hope for the current presidential administration and Congress to make changes to agricultural policy that will line up with your prescriptions? Or are you seeing sort of more of the same old trends continue?
0: I see a lot of hope and also a lot of peril. Um, You know, like a lot of people, I was really disappointed by the, the choosing of Tom Vilsack to run the USDA, yeah. uh, which he ran for the eight years under the Obama administration and was basically a centrist corporate Democrat and ran the um, department like that. And you can Google my name and his name and see some critiques. Um, I've been writing about Vilsack since you know 2008, um, but I wrote some stuff about him around the time of, of his nomination. And so I see that as definitely a sign that Biden, you know, another. other Picks that he's done. He's shown an ability to grow past the sort of centrist corporate Democrat place that he came from and that he occupied under Obama. But in ag, he went, you know, took a sharp turn backwards. But I think he and Vilsack were probably surprised by the reception that, you know, very few people outside of ag commodity groups like, you know, the the Farm Bureau or the National Corn Growers were excited about it. Uh, There's a lot of pushback. So I think Vilsack is starting off a little bit on his back heel and, you know, kind of forced into a position of wanting to show progressives that, hey, you know, I changed with the times. So I take some hope in that. But um, where I'm really getting hope nowadays is, um, you know, essentially uh, Cory Booker, who used to be sort of the uh, personification of the centrist corporate Democrat, has really been yeah. putting forward some impressive um, ag policy bills in the past couple of years, she's got an incredible bill that would um, essentially phase out over time confined animal feedlot operations, the giant factory hog and chicken and uh, farms and um, and beef uh, feedlots. Uh, really, really crack down on them and and phase them out in a way that would be fair to the um, to the farmers now holding the bag for them. Um, he's got incredible Justice for Black Farmers Act that would, um, you know, redress some really stark wrongs sent to Black farmers over the past century, and um, and he's got a climate bill that um, I think has some potential that uh, focuses on ag. And the exciting thing about him is that he joined the Senate Ag Committee. Um, he is now, you know, the senator from New Jersey is now in the Senate Ag Committee. This was not a a, a sexy. Um, uh, committee to be on for ambitious politicians from urban areas um, in recent years. And he's, um, he you know, he's going in full, full throated with a lot of policy ideas. Uh, Senator Warnock, who, you know, recently won election in Georgia, joined him on the Senate Ad Committee. And so now we have our second and third black um, senators on the committee ever. And um, and Warnock seems to, have, you know, he's from Atlanta, another urban guy seems to have some very progressive, um, ag policy. And I, I know it might sound crazy to listeners like, you know, how are we praising this guy from Jersey? How is he going to tell us about ag policy? But I can tell you that, um, that Booker has been working really hard with, um, Joe Maxwell, um, used to be with the, um, organization for competitive markets, which, uh, which seeks to rein in the power of these um, giant corporations that run the food system. And Joe is now doing a thing called family farm action. You know, Joe's a Missouri guy who grew up in a hog farm. Um, He's sort of a a good progressive populist. And, um, and Corey Booker's staff has been working really hard with groups like that. So it isn't coming from a place of ignorance, like, Hey, we know how to do agriculture here in Newark, and we're going to oppose it on you um, out in rural America Uh, It's very nuanced. It's very tied into progressive social movements in in farm country. Um, So I'm excited about that. Um, I haven't seen a a progressive force, a real progressive force within the committee in the Senate in a while. And on the House side, for 15 years, the top Democrat on the House um, Ag Committee was Colin Peterson. Colin Peterson is essentially a climate change denier and a champion of these agribusiness companies. He was defeated in his race, um, booted out of the, um, out of the house um, by the election. And there is this uh, Representative Scott from Georgia, also an African-American man who's been on the committee for a while. Um, he, you know, I don't know much about him yet. Um, I do think he's got some agribusiness interests. You know, if you're from Georgia, you probably do. But he does not deny climate change. And he has been talking about it a lot since he took over. And I think that's very encouraging to go from a climate denier to someone who's determined to have an adult conversation about it um, as it pounds um, farm country across the country. So I'm encouraged by by that. And I'm encouraged by social movements like the climate movement um, has come up. And already had a big impact. It's you know stopped the Keystone pipeline a couple of times, and I think the climate movement is getting more sophisticated about food, and the food movement is getting more sophisticated about climate and I would like to see them come together and basically fuse because it's really the same they're really the same question: How do we keep ourselves going? How do we transition away from fossil fuels? How do we keep the food supply going? Um, despite these inevitable weather shocks. Even if we stop using fossil fuels, we still are dealing with climate chaos. And so, and I think that in Washington, we have people on the ground who are listening to social movements um, in a way that we didn't have 10 years ago. And really that's where I take my hope.
1: Well, Tom, thanks so much for your insight
0: and congratulations on the book. Well, thank you so much for having me and asking me such smart questions.
1: There you have it. Go buy Perilous Bounty at the AcresUSA.com bookstore. Use the coupon code FEBPOD, that's F-E-B-P-O-D, for 10% off on all titles. To find out more about Tom Philpot, visit www.tomphilpott.net. Thank you for listening to another episode of Tractor Time, brought to you by AcresUSA and Barn to Door. Subscribe to our channel on YouTube, iTunes, or anywhere podcasts are available. Also find us at AcresUSA.com, EcoFarmingDaily.com, and don't forget to subscribe to our monthly magazine. Thanks again for listening and have a great week.